Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld and Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. As Cantor Chorney and I were looking at the Parsha this week, we were each intrigued by different verses, different puzzles in the Parsha. So this morning, instead of one of us giving one long sermon, each of us will give a really long sermon. <laughs> Just kidding. Two short bursts of Torah, first from me on one part of the Parsha, and then Rabbi Chorney will speak briefly a little bit at the end. I don't remember how old I was when I heard the following, which I'm still not even sure is apocryphal, but it's memorable, even if it's not true, which is that when you're dealing with a pearl and you want to know if it's real or if it's fake, the only way you can determine that is to put a pearl in like a, a solution of vinegar or something, and if it dissolves, it was real. Right? So I have no idea if that's true on a scientific level, but I remember it because my mind has always been drawn towards paradoxes, towards the only way to prove that something exists is to have it not be exist. And there are parts of paradoxical thinking that impact a lot of our relationships with each other and our relationship with the divine. Let's start with the divine. The great philosopher Martin Buber, about whom many of us on the Betham clergy team have taught and spoken, wrote that the ideal relationship between us and the Holy One is to render the Holy One not an it, not an other, not some object for our utility, but, and this is a clunky translation from the German into the English, but a thou, a you, an intimacy. Our goal is not to be reaching out to the Holy One to get things, but to be in a intimate relationship that transcends any sense of need. The only problem is you can't aim for that, he would say. The only way to get into an I-thou moment with the creator of the universe is not to be trying to. And if you are in that intimate moment in the middle of a prayer or a burst of spiritual ecstasy, the moment that you realize you're in it, it is over. That's a wonderful philosophical and spiritual paradox. The very thing that you want in your religious life you can't aim for because you won't get it. And if you recognize that you have achieved it, the bubble is burst and it's over. I think the same is true in our relationships with one another. What do we want with our friends and our intimates and our beloveds? We want to experience a reality that transcends the details of any interaction, that goes bigger than any word or idea that's shared, something that fills up our soul with a sense of an eternal beauty. If you try to make it happen in any given conversation or outing or vacation or experience, it'll probably be elusive. And if you are ever in such a moment with a spouse or a child or a friend, it's over a little bit once you recognize you have achieved it and you start thinking about it. So once again, whether it comes to a pearl 
or our relationship with God or our relationship with one another, the thing we most desire, we can't directly go for. And if we actually are aware that we have it, a piece of it is gone. There's an aspect of that paradox when it comes to how some people understand this relationship between Korach and Moshe that Leo already spoke about so beautifully. It's no hyperbole to say that hundreds, thousands of interpretations are out there trying to figure out what did this guy do wrong? When he said to Moshe, Kulam Kedoshim, everyone in Israel is holy. Lama Titnasu, why are you lording yourself over us? Is that not an appropriate thing for a member of a constituency to say to a leader? Why is he an arch-villain? The Torah doesn't give us enough obvious clues, which is why it's open for interpretation. One of my favorite commenters, commentators on this idea is the Kli Akar, Rabbi Shlomo Ephraim Lunjitz from Poland, the 19th century, who focuses on a two-word phrase that describes Korach and his crew, and it calls them Anshei Shem, people of name, people of renown. The simplest way of understanding that is that these were known people in the camp. These were not nochschleppers coming up to rise like against Moshe. They were chieftains. They were already leaders. They were people of repute. They were on Sheshem. They had names. People heard of them. But the Kliakar says that phrase is actually a window into understanding what was broken about their attempt. They were Anshe people who were searching only for a shame to make a name for themselves. They were motivated not by doing the right and the good for the experience of the Israelites in the desert. They were motivated so that they would be remembered. That is not the way to be remembered. Or, if you are motivated only by being remembered, then you're probably going to be remembered for that and not necessarily the good that you might have done accidentally along the way. We are all motivated by having our names be known. I think it connects to a looming mortality, this recognition, as many people have noted, that humans die twice. The first, when they stop breathing, and the second, when nobody remembers their name. We all want to have our names on plaques and on books and the things that we did live on beyond us because life is short. And there is a part of that that is supremely important and supremely human because you can certainly underdo it. You can certainly not think enough of your own self and renown and name to have the confidence to be accomplished in the world. But Korach and his rabble-rousers overdid it. It seems that they were calling for Moshe to be more humble in his leadership, and in doing so, they exemplified an utter lack of that humility. All they wanted was their name in a book, and they got it, but not for the reasons they would have wanted to. I think one of the greatest challenges of parenthood and of education is to raise children not to become people who will do the right and the good in order to get their name recognized, but who will actually avoid 
the focus on getting their name recognized and focus more on doing the right and the good. And that's a paradox. Somehow you can't necessarily do both at the same time. But if we raise a community of young men and women into the next generation whose primary prism is the tov, what is good for the society around them, then they actually might have a chance of developing a name that will live on long after they are here. That's the object lesson that I take from Parshat Korach this week and a challenge to all of us as we are proud of our names, but more proud of the good that we can do with our time on this earth. Before I share the words that uh, that I want to share Torah this morning, I want to say... I so appreciate your words of Torah, Rabbi Klickfeld, and I'm, I'm going to dwell on them and think about how it is that we can achieve this idea of living in that paradox of allowing people to be in pursuit of the Tov and living in the Tov and still have their names lifted up. And I think that it takes a mutual agreement of lifting other people's names up to do that. So if we're all living in this breach, if we live in a pact where we live for the good, but we are committed to lifting up the names of other people who we see doing the good, then we can achieve that. So I appreciate when you lift my name up. I commit to lifting your names up. I don't mean just you, but, you know, all of you. Um, and I'm going to think on that, how we can do that better. So it really it really strikes me. It strikes me in a, in a tender Torah place. Um, Zehu, Dayinu, that could be enough of Torah, but I do want to share one little piece that's sticking with me this week. Um, what, what would you think if I told you that all those blue bins that we have reflecting, presumably, recycling around the institution, at the end of the day, just went to the same place that all of the garbage went at the end of the day. I know at least Rabbi Kligfeld goes to bed at night worrying about that, and so do other people in our institution. I think what it would do to me if I found that out is that it would ruin my faith in the ecological commitment that our institution had made. It would damage my faith in that system. It would so doubt and harm my faith in what we were doing as a community, but worse, I think that I would probably no longer take the extra steps to stick my empty water bottle in the blue bin, right? Because if I didn't believe in the effort if I didn't think that it was going anywhere, why should I bother being a part of it? It's just the case that throughout time, great and important systems, whether we're talking about ecology or religion, systems of faith, can get pulled down, can get ruined by bad encounters by bad actors, by the discovery that that system is in fact corrupt. I remember my husband sharing with me 
that one of his great-grandfathers, when he moved to Bogota, Colombia, intended to be a butcher. But when he went to apprentice, he found out where they were getting their meat from. He learned that it wasn't such a kosher source. Not only did he not become a kosher butcher, but he gave up kashrut altogether. It ruined it for him. It ruined the system, and it ruined his faith in the system. The problem is that when you discover that something you believed in deeply is a farce or it's theater, not only do you not want to believe in it anymore, you don't want to participate in it anymore. In our Parsha, the most memorable thing that happens to the people by way of punishment is that the earth opens up and swallows a bunch of people. But there's also a plague. And I was drawn to look at the plague because we are coming out of a magifa. We're coming out of a plague. In fact, that's the word that we use in the Avinu Malkenu line that has stuck even in our daily minion to this time. We pray that we're emerging from this magifa, Alenu, that that's upon us. And when Aharon, the brother of Moshe, comes forward in chapter 17 at the direction of Moshe to save the people from the Magifa, from the plague, he comes forward and he burns incense. And that's how he's supposed to save the people. He stands between the dead and the living. That's what the line says. He stands between the metim uvenachayim, between the dead and the living, and he burns incense, and this is how the plague begins to cease, and then ceases for real two verses later. Rashi comes forward, Rashi, the 11th century commentator, and says, incense? Really? Incense is the thing that stopped the plague? Why is it that we allow incense to take the crown in this moment? Hey, why isn't it tefillah? Why isn't it prayer? Why isn't it chuvai? Why isn't it repentance? Why isn't it something else profound? Why isn't it some sort of other leadership stepping forward? It's incense that gets to save the day with the plague. So Rashi brings this story from the Mechilta, and he says the following. He says that the Kadosh Baruch Hu, God, was concerned that incense, which pleased God so much, had been ruined. It got a bad name by Nadav and Avihu to start, and then by this story continuing onward, and it just got ruined. And God wanted incense to be continued. He didn't want the theater of ritual to be ruined by people who had taken it and used it in bad faith and in bad name. And so he said he wanted incense to get its moment. He wanted incense to be the end of the Magefa because if it got a great moment, perhaps it could be resolved. Perhaps it could come forward. Perhaps it could be redeemed. Because it wasn't that incense that was bad it was that people had used it in bad faith it's possible to redeem things that are used in bad faith and it's possible to redeem great systems as well 
And we see this done in religion all the time. And what this brought to mind for me, in particular, is the history of mikvah. It's something that's really dear to my heart, which is that for years and years, there was a move away in many parts of the Jewish community from the use of ritual immersion. It was moved away from because it was thought of as a ritual that was only used by a certain segment of the community, that was reserved to be supervised only by a certain segment of the community, that was only meant for certain genders in the community, and it experienced a revival, and it experienced a redemption. And there are so many incredible rituals that have been created at the hands of people who understand that it wasn't the mikvah or the waters itself that were either corrupted or were a ritual that was troubled or problematic, but rather that in the hands of people who were resolved to make it something special and to make it something magical, it could be something special and it could be something magical. So we can remake magic in ritual. It's in our hands to do it, as proven by the incense moment in our Pasha. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.